Well, kia ora, hello and welcome to the Coast Vineyard Podcast. Whether you're a regular or a first-time listener, it's so good to have you listening in. We hope and pray that wherever you may find yourself at today, that the message that you're about to hear would be helpful for your journey of faith. So without further ado, let's get into this week's message. Hello, good morning, Coast Vineyard. Thank you guys so much, so much for having me here today and for your welcome. It has been such a pleasure to spend more time with Matt and Jacinda and just receive the welcome of this house and really the welcome of everybody else who's been in in New Zealand has just been fantastic. Today I want to talk to you about something that has really impacted me when I was in the uh, conference that Matt was just talking about. Today I want to talk to you about stories. Stories seem like something that's very abstract, but Honestly, has anybody been involved with deliverance ministry around here? Have you prayed for people and bumped into that kind of thing or prayed for people in healing? It was shocking to me during the conference. The main central takeaway from that was the power of healing and deliverance that is in fixing people's stories. As simple as that. Sometimes charismatic people kind of go off into weird corners and pray for things and like look around under rocks and so on. And without making any comment on what is good and what is bad, But it turns out that the power of God's story is the only thing that you need to completely change your life for the power of God. And I want to talk about stories today. I love stories. If you asked me really who I am and what my hobbies are, I would not tell you. I would not start with stories. I would say that I love athletics. I love computer programming. I love lots of different things like that. And the reason that I wouldn't think to tell you about stories is because stories are so deep in me and deep in you that you probably don't even think of them as one of your primary interests. One of the best things that you can do to spend time with friends, like I feel like I'm spending with you now, is to share stories. The second best thing that you can do together with friends is to share a meal. And so there's really nothing better than sharing a meal that is a story, right? Sometimes that's possible, and sometimes we don't get that opportunity. I'm not usually the storyteller in my group of friends, but my friends tell stories, and when they do, I start paying attention. And something that's really remarkable, even though, like, I've always been kind of a social outsider and the introvert person who doesn't do this, uh, but when any of my friends share stories, I feel and I know somehow that the characters they're talking about in the story are me. Somehow the events, even if they take Uh, They take place in another country far away, in other circumstances. Somehow I feel like every story is talking about me. Do you feel that? I think that's part of what we are as human beings. One of my most powerful experiences uh, growing up was my dad reading stories to me. And my dad had incredible patience, and so he read the entire uh, Hobbit and Lord of the Rings to me, page to page, from front to back. Have you read these books? These are long books, right? Love these books, these are great. But the fact that he read those stories to me, even though like I am, <laughs> those stories are fiction and I have never had any adventures like that, as he was reading those things to me, I felt like I was in the story and he was talking about me. And the fact that he was spending time with me made a huge difference like, as, a, as a child from a parent. There's a hidden ingredient when he's reading those stories to me. Did your parents read stories to you? It's different when the parent reads the story to you and tells it to you, right? If you're the child and just reading the book, The power is not there. The power in the story comes from the connection of the storyteller speaking the story into you and you knowing that he is describing you. Even if it's a fictional story when you're a child, 
You feel it, and it stays in you because your parent is reading it to you. So stories are very, very powerful. One of the really obvious things, I've never been to New Zealand before. This has been a wonderful first trip. One of the immediate stories that everybody tells you, from signs to people to uh, people who do introductions in churches, is the story of the people who lived on this island before and a different people who came after. And it's really clear to an outsider that the people of New Zealand have spent a lot of time considering this story, the sequence of events, and that morals have been drawn and interpretations have been made about these things. There are things that are viewed and were bad, and there are other things that we want to do differently in the future. And it's clear that this country and its people commit to dealing with the past in a certain way and steering intelligently through the future. And the reason that I was told those stories when I came here was because you want to perpetuate the knowledge that has been gained and the morals of these stories so that you can live in the way that you intend to, empowered by your past and not victim to it. Your history could be interpreted in many ways, but you have chosen one particular way, which you feel is the best way from what you've learned. So stories are really powerful because they shape the future. This is why parents tell stories to children. It's not just to keep children busy, although that is a godsend. We know that in telling stories to children, we are implanting something in them which they will carry and live out. The story will go into the child and will become the child's life. It's important that you tell good stories to your children. So stories are very powerful, and anyone who can tell a story has great influence. But there is an ambiguity in stories, which is a great opportunity and risk and benefit. The ambiguity is the difference between the events of the story and the interpretation we draw from those events. Do you know the difference? There are people who looked in the events of New Zealand, there are people who interpreted those events in maybe a completely opposite way from the way that you interpreted them. They lived differently and they took very different actions from you. And so we have a choice about how we interpret stories. I think we've all studied world history, not only the history of this country, but of um, the entire world and of the countries that came before and hundreds and thousands of years before, right? I think everybody in this room, like all the super young people have left, so we've all studied world history in school, right? We probably all learned the same events. And there was somebody in 1848 who realized the distinction that you can draw if you've got mental flexibility between the circumstances of history and the interpretation of history. And in 1848, he proposed a new story to retell the past events in a powerful way. And let me read to you my uh, brief paraphrase of this thing. He wrote in 1848, the history of all society is the history of class struggles. Freeman and slave, oppressor and oppressed, stood in opposition to one another, always going on in a sometimes hidden, sometimes open fight. And every form of society has been based on the antagonism between these two oppressed and oppressing classes. This is the Communist Manifesto. And what I'm saying is that it's a story. Marx did not have different facts. He was not saying that we got the facts of history wrong. Marx was saying, no, 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 you guys all got the story of history wrong. You haven't seen, you have mislabeled the good guys and the bad guys. This thing needs to go in a different direction. And to be a good guy in my Marx story, you need to do different things because you have to view the facts in a different way. Everything that followed after Marx, you know what followed after Marx, right? To say it very, very neutrally, tens or dozens of entire countries were created to live out the story that Marx told. Marx himself, as far as I know, was not a revolutionary. I don't think he ever fired a shot. From what I read, he seemed sort of like a, 
interesting dinner host who had lots of very talkative ideas and liked to ramble on and uh, be an academic and write books. Most of the things that happened for Mark's story happened after his life. But Marx wielded incredible power and, in fact, set up some of the most major elements of geopolitical conflict that shape world events today right now, and you see them on the news. Marx had nothing to do <laughs> with any of the military action that followed after. The single thing that Marx did, the single thing, is that he differentiated the circumstances and facts of history and chose to tell an alternate story. And because we are made for stories, there are many people who loved that story and lived and died for that story. And that story lives on today because stories don't die. Now, the troubling thing is that we're in a position like Marx. We all have the choice to interpret our circumstances, right? You know that I'm not here to talk about Marx, right? I'm here to talk about the story that God is telling. An interesting thing about the Bible that many of us in the West find inconvenient, if we are honest, is that the Bible is not a book of systematic theology. If you would like to find a chapter and say, how am I saved? How does salvation work? Where do the angels come from? How many are there? Like, how exactly do the charismatic gifts work? The Bible is really uh, not the book in the form that you are looking for, and this is admittedly inconvenient. Instead, it looks to me like the Bible is a storybook. It's nothing but people who live stories and share what was happening in their life. And sometimes the Bible offers some clear things in its uh, interpretation, but many times it doesn't. So, I think that there are many parts of the story God is telling in the Bible that we really don't have a lot of, <laughs> of the same interpretation that God does. We have a lot of facts straight. We've got all the Christian orthodoxy about salvation, repentance, and Jesus. I think we've got that all right. But a lot of the larger, the macro story, the arc of where all of this stuff is going, I don't think that we're fully on the same page with God. And I think that's great. I've got great hope. We would know that we were on the same storyline as God if we saw the greater works and the same works as Jesus happening all the time. I think it's as simple as that. And so what I want to talk about today is I want to drill down into one aspect of the story that I think God is telling in the Bible. And the aspect that I want to talk about is salvation. So I'd like to briefly skim through, hopefully quickly, as fast as I can, a number of stories, but tell them in a slightly different way than maybe you've heard them before. And I want to tell them in a way that is about you, because all of these stories are about you. Let's go straight back to some of the first people who had the choice that Marx chose and had the choice that you face every day in your Christianity. The choice to differentiate between what are the circumstances of my life and what is the story that is being told here. So let's go back to Genesis. Now, very, very briefly, Adam and Eve were set up and were given everything by God. They were given this entire earth and all the spaces within it, and they could choose what to do. And the serpent said, in a nutshell, you got the facts right about God. You know that he's great and you want to be like him. You know that the tree of life and wisdom and good and evil is, is a good thing, right? Satan was not lying about those things. Satan was saying, the story, he got the story wrong. You don't know who's the good guy and the bad guy here, right? So they make a choice and they become part of the story that they bought into, and you know what happened. The fruit of their choice is their sons, in a way, which is parallel to what happens with us. They have two sons, Cain and Abel. Now, it's really easy with retrospective history to think that Cain and Abel were like, I'm here to establish theology. I'm here to establish like these biblical Old Testament stories. 
I don't think that's really what it was like to be them. I think that they were just being themselves. The only thing I think that we know about Abel was that he was a keeper of livestock. That was just his career. You have a normal career. I don't know what you do. You probably don't think it's glamorous. You probably thought that you got into your position of career just through normal accidental means, like me. Um, Cain was a keeper of the fields. He probably got into that career by accident, right? And they were not trying to establish any sort of biblical thing. But something different happens between these two brothers. One of them finds the favor of God, and the other one does not in his career, for whatever reason the Bible does not say. Cain becomes jealous of Abel, and what does he do? He kills him. Now, what exactly was Cain jealous of? What I'm proposing today is that Abel, within his life, was choosing the story of God, and within even his body and his blood, in his entire life, he had the acceptance story of God. And Cain couldn't stand that he didn't have that. He saw the acceptance story embodied in his brother, embodied, embodied like this, in his body, in his actions. When Abel woke up in the morning, that was the embodied story of an accepted son of God. And Cain was like, I stand condemned. I'm not like that. You know, my embodied story doesn't feel like that. And I can't stand that. And so what does Cain do? The embodied form, the embodied story of an accepted son, Cain kills it. And there is a body and there is a blood that goes into the ground. Now, God comes and confronts Cain about this thing. And I think you probably remember uh, the conversation fairly well, right? It's kind of famous. God comes up and he says, Cain, where's your brother? And Cain is like, am I my brother's keeper? And God says, the facts are this. You killed your brother, his blood is in the ground, and his blood is telling me a story. His blood is telling me a testimony of what happened. His blood is crying out for me to do something. And God steps in and recounts these other things. And Cain turns around and looks at God and says, basically, you have cursed me. God says that you have been cursed by the ground, but Cain says, actually, you have cursed me, God. God says, this is going to be heavy, but Cain says, I can't deal with this burden. There, Cain here is just looking at the same facts of his condemnation. The facts of his life condemn him, but he's missing the story. And the story is that God has responded to the pleas of his brother's blood, and God has stepped into the life of Cain and is walking with him side by side. There's no indication in the text that God is condemning Cain, even though Cain has just invented murder. God says to Cain, I will walk with you through your circumstance. You will face the consequences of your sin, but if you will walk with me, you will also share in my story the identity of where I'm going. You will live with your consequences, but you will share in my identity. This is a story that's repeated again and again. It's a pattern. It's a template of the arrival of salvation. All of us in the church have been told that salvation is the following formula. You repent of your sins, you turn from your wicked ways, and you obey Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. That is 100% the truth, 1,000% the truth. However, that is a sort of a formulation of stories that we've seen in the Bible. The Bible mostly doesn't cast salvation in that formula. The formula is completely right. Don't hear me say differently. But the arrival of salvation in the Bible is actually always the arrival of a person. It is not somebody who usually goes through the same sort of prayer that we do. God was arriving in Cain's life as salvation. 
there was a salvation gap in Cain's life. And the specific thing, actually, in the story is Cain is worried that somebody's going to kill him, right? And God shows up as the specific element of protection from consequences in his life and says, you know, you are missing a salvation gap. You, you have a salvation gap here. You have a problem. I have a solution, and it's in me. Just like the thing that you hated in your brother was in him, and it was a piece of salvation, the acceptance of a son was inside Abel, and you couldn't stand that, so you got rid of what was inside of him. I am the protection for consequences for sin. I will walk with you. And that was the salvation that God was embodying in the story of salvation that he was doing walking with Cain. But Cain chose a different way. It is really fascinating, all the things that come from Cain's story after this. He chooses a negative story. He starts a city. And without getting into it, just, let's just <laughs> please just believe me that this story, the city he makes actually becomes later... Um, the Tower of Babel, basically. It becomes a city called Ur, which secular archaeologists consider to be the world's first city. He names the city after his son, which is a really interesting thing for a father to do. There are overtones of that, you know, in what the Father God does with Jesus. Like, both fathers establish a city in the name of their son. They build up the city and they give the city to their son. Cain makes a complete pattern of anti-salvation. It's, it's a really fascinating, longer biblical study that I don't have time to, to talk about today. But this pattern that we see with God stepping into Cain's life is a really big deal. And it's not just Cain. I'm not just picking that out as one example or reading that into the text because we see the same salvation happen with a million Sunday school examples throughout the Old Testament. We usually think that these people are um, good stories to tell to children, like they're good concepts, and they've all pointed the way to Jesus. And then when Jesus came, none of them really mattered. Like, can, I, I can admit that to you, that that's often how I feel about Old Testament people, right? I'm like, the Old Testament didn't really need to happen. You know, like, Jesus did it all. Jesus did it all, like all the hymns say, and I can repent and just jump right into his universal perfect salvation. And Jesus' salvation is absolutely universal and perfect and complete, right? But there is a reason that salvation was sent in all of these other characters in the Old Testament, and I want to draw those out as examples. Let's talk about Abraham. So Abraham, actually, one of the things that we miss about Abraham is he's actually born in the biblical narrative into the same city that Cain founded. I'm not telling you that archaeologically it was the same city. I'm just saying in the biblical narrative, there's a continuation between Cain's city and the place where Abraham grows up. It says that Abraham leaves Ur, which I'm, I'm saying here is the same city. So the circumstances of Abraham's life and the stories that he inherits are the same ones that Cain had. He lives in a society that was broken away from God, and he lives in the big city, this new urban pattern. But we know that Abraham is the pioneer of faith, right? Abraham looks at the circumstances of his life, and he was just a family man. He was just being himself in a city. But he decided that he wanted to have a different story. He could have stayed in the same circumstances and probably lived a fine life, and nobody would have questioned him on it. But in being himself, he felt a different dream. He felt the call of the story of God to do something different with his circumstances, to tell a different story. And what is the specific story that Abraham wants to tell? Can you remember what he sets out to find? It's a city built by God, a city not built by man. This is a correction for the story that Cain believed, right? Cain set out to find his own city that he built himself. Abraham is built in the same circumstances, but he makes a correction by changing the interpretation from the world's interpretation of the story 
into God's interpretation. So Abraham leaves the city to go make a new city. Do you know that the consequences of Abraham's choice, you live in the benefit of that today. I hope it's okay to say that it's not just that Jesus saved you and gave you salvation, but Abraham, in a real way that matters to God, brought you into a new lineage. Later in Abraham's life, most of the time when we talk about Abraham, we talk about the sacrifice of his son and so on. The reason that that happens is because he's telling a different story with his lineage. Until now, everybody in human history has been descended simply from their parents. That's usually how we think about children being had, right? Like, they're the parents and then the children who come from that. Something actually really different happens with the sacrifice that Abraham does that we overlook. By putting his child in a position of faith and offering him back to God, what Abraham receives as a son is not just a son of himself, but he receives back a lineage that comes from God because it was God that gave him his lineage back. So Abraham fixes the city pattern and allows us to have a city which comes from God, and he fixes the lineage pattern where he foretells and he brings back this concept into humanity of we can have a lineage, a future lineage which actually comes descended from God again because I've received my son from the Father again. Abraham does this by faith. It is a premonition of Jesus, but it is not just the idea that Jesus will be sacrificed. That is absolutely what Abraham did. But he actually folds his entire, the entire promise of lineage goes through this offering and this receiving again of the son, and he fixes our story. Nobody else did that until Abraham did it. And I'm guessing that the only reason that, oh, what really made Abraham perfect for this is Abraham is just a family man, right? Abraham didn't identify a problem in theology. Abraham might not have even identified a particular problem in his world. He was just being himself. He felt like something was wrong in his neighborhood, and so he left. He felt like his family needed to be different, and so he had a different kind of family. Abraham becomes to us a piece of salvation. Abraham is not universal salvation. He's not eternal salvation. But in a real way, he became a piece of salvation that the world was missing. Abraham gave his body and his blood because he gave his life. He put his own lineage on the line. He gave himself. Now, David is another, uh, another great example. We talk about David a lot, but I think we don't realize how strange David actually is. <laughs> like, you may have noticed that the Middle East has had many warlords throughout history, and that was sort of David's career. But David had a really different way of doing this thing. David didn't approach any problem in the way that normal warlords do. He approached all of his problems as receiving a solution from God, as receiving a solution from intimate relationship and friendship with God. This is why we have the warrior kid who is a poet. You know, David's strength, including when he defeats animals, when he defeats Goliath, he's not getting the strength from his friends. He's not like sparring in the boxing gym to become a better fighter. He says, when he confronts Goliath, He's not looking at the circumstances. David instead has something more powerful than the circumstances. David has in his heart a different story. And so when Goliath is like, look at the circumstances, I'm going to crush you because this is incredibly obvious that I will crush you. You're like a kid in Sunday school and I'm this ridiculous, huge giant. David says, you're totally right about that, but I know what the story is here. And the story is that my God kills you. And that story played out because David lived in that tension and submitted himself to the story. 
like Abraham, who made several contributions to us in this way and became elements of uh, salvation to Israel and areas around that, David also made several contributions in this way. Did you notice that the redeemed lineage thing that I mentioned is essential to kingdom theology and the rest of Christianity? There's something about kingship that David also brings in. Of all of the other kings, including good ones, that Israel had, Jesus comes from the line of David. I'm sure that I don't know all of what what that means, but one thing I do know is that, do you remember David with Saul? David does all these ridiculous things to surrender his claim to the throne until God chooses him. It's basically the same kind of risk that Abraham did when he put his son on the altar. He's like, I could just have this child, but I need to put this thing in a position of such great risk that the only way I'm going to have lineage is if you give it to me, Father. David says, I could just have this kingship. The current king is a jerk, and nobody likes him, and he's a bad ruler, and I know from a prophet that you have already chosen me, but I will not receive the kingdom unless you give it to me. That's what David says. That is why David was the greatest king, because he would only receive the father's rule if it was given to him, not if he took it, right? This establishes the kingship that Jesus says he belongs to, David did this because he disregarded his circumstances and he wanted to live out and become the story that God was telling. It was not enough for David to be king of Israel. David didn't want that. David didn't want victory over his circumstances. David wanted to become the manifest story of God. There is power in our lives, in our bodies, and in our blood. Now, these elements of salvation that go to Israel (laughs) are amazing. And those stories end up uh, getting cut short, and then there's silence, and then somebody else new comes as God's salvation to the world, who comes bringing salvation in his body and in his blood. He lives in a different way, and he tells a different story, and he faces a different salvation gap than anyone else who had ever come before. And you know who that person is. Abraham was facing a salvation gap in the world around him about lineage and where our descendants and our, where our ancestors come from, where our descendants go to. David was God's answer to the lack of having a kingship that came from God. Jesus comes in a different shape than those guys. The salvation gap that Jesus was addressing was that we needed a new man. Everybody else had operated for Adam, but we needed a new Adam, and that's where Jesus comes from. And that's where you come in. You know that you don't need to continue the ministry of Abraham, and you don't need to continue the ministry of David. I'm glad that we don't have to do those things. (laughs) But the world has changed, and we're part of a different story now. Parents tell powerful stories to their children because it gives them the life that they will then follow. And Jesus tells us to live out a different story. In John, right before the Last Supper, John says, and Jesus, having loved them thus far, loved them to the end. I think the end that John is talking about is the breaking up of that fellowship, of when all the, uh, all the disciples scatter and then leave Jesus to, uh, to go to the cross. That phrase, he loved them to the end, is really powerful to me. I don't think that... John was referring to Jesus hosting the Last Supper when he said that. I think that what John was referring to was when he broke his body and his blood 
in that meal and offer it to them. That's what love was. Jesus says, no one has any greater love than this than that he lay down his life for his friend. There is power in your personal life with just who you are. Abel was just being himself when he was a shepherd, but there was life in his, in his flesh, in his body, in his blood. There was so much life in Abel just being himself and living God's story that his brother killed him to take it. There is so much life in Jesus living the story that he lived that it is actually his body and blood that saves you. When we had communion this morning among friends, we came together to share a story, which is one of the best things that you can do with friends. And we said that we are part of the story that Jesus is telling. We are part of his body and his blood. I think that the Great Commission is greatly misunderstood sometimes. Uh, we have great uh, intentions with this, but we often try to go out and tell the world the facts about Jesus. We need to tell the story about Jesus. And the story about Jesus is not just a narrative arc with good guys and bad guys and events. You are the story of Jesus. You are in the body of Christ. You are his face and his hands. The gospel cannot go to anywhere except where you are going. You know that verse where Jesus says, this message will go out to all peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations, and then the end will come? A lot of well-meaning people, who I appreciate, have uh, taken that to mean that we need to translate the Bible in every language and send missionaries with that message in the language to every country. That is awesome. But I tell you, the message cannot go out into all the world until it is spoken in your words. You speak a different language, and you fit a different salvation gap that no one else can go in but you. We in the church spend a lot of time looking at people who speak to us from podiums, and I'm thankful that I can share from that context today. But in the church, we don't need more people on podiums. I'm thankful for everybody who does paid work in churches, and may they continue to do the incredible work that they're doing. The world needs people who meet them where they're at, and that looks like you. The examples that I gave in the Old Testament were just people being themselves. None of them, I don't think, had any idea as to the consequences of their actions. There's no way that anybody in the Old Testament could have understood the incredible, eternal, and cosmic implications of what they were doing. But that is the impact of you being yourself, living the story of Jesus Christ. I see so many people who write themselves off, they don't know the meaning of their life. They're like, why am I doing any of these things? Does my work mean anything? Do my relationships mean anything? Life doesn't seem to have that sort of saturated spiritual meaning that I hear when people come back from missions to Nepal, where I've heard awesome, incredible spiritual stories and their powerful conversions and deliverances and all these things. I know what it's like to live real life, right? I live in real life, I think, as much as you do. And most of the time, I'm doing normal things, I'm paying the bills, I'm wondering why I'm waking up in the morning. And we feel like there's this huge distance between the story that God tells through missions and through other things like that and my really dry, gray, boring, urban life. That is not how it is. That is not what the spiritual world sees when it looks at you. The spiritual world, when it sees you, sees the face of Jesus. And anywhere that you go, the story of God is being told. 
All that we have to do is tell the story that God has told to us. So I think that we need to change and want to change and should be feeling so much freer to change how we live as Christians. I've spent so much time trying to look like people who are doing ministry kinds of things and thinking, just being honest with you, thinking about giving talks that look like this or something. None of those things are what I'm trying to do and what I have to do. The only thing that I can do is be who Jesus is inside me. Salvation, biblically, I think, is always the arrived the arrival of a saved person in an unsaved context. I want to be to the world like God was to Cain. God steps into Cain's uh, broken circumstances, his broken identity, and I see God saying to Cain, sure, you're going to continue walking through broken circumstances that you've chosen for yourself, but I will be to you a piece of salvation that you need. My faith for everybody this morning is that you will know in your circumstances who you need to be to live in that tension and be salvation to the people around you. Let me just uh, close with something that I think is a promise of the power of this. You remember Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit comes and everybody's speaking in all the different languages? And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and all these other countries that are really hard to pronounce, <laughs> both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And Peter gives a sermon. And they were all amazed and perplexed, saying, what do these things mean? When they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said, what shall we do? The thing that will cut the world to the heart is to hear the gospel in their language, in their circumstances, from you. Does that make sense? Is that good? The, the story of God is so, so powerful. And I don't, want to, I don't want to underestimate it. A commitment that I want to make, and if, you're, if you would consider making this commitment with, with me, please do it. If you want to close your eyes and pray with me, that would be great. I'm going to pray a prayer <laughs> that is rather costly. It's something that I commit to. You don't have to pray this unless you want to. God, the only thing that I can give to you is myself. And the only thing that I can give other people is myself. It is not good enough for me <laughs> to just give an echo of a message. That's not what you did. When you send me out into the world, I want to give my actual body and blood, which is exactly the only thing that you did, Jesus. That is what I want to give to my neighbors and the people in my workplace, the people in my church. I don't want to give, as David said, a gift that costs me nothing. Because Jesus, every gift that you gave was all of you. And all of you was always enough for every circumstance. I'd like to just hang out a bit. Um, thank you guys for playing the music, that's perfect. I'd like to pray for you guys and maybe do some ministry.
God, as you know that your circumstances are not your story, but that you have the power to change what is happening around you. I just want to speak over everyone here permission. Permission to change that story with what you have in your heart. So often we are looking for a program to be announced, somebody to invite us into something, or the magic answer. Like, do exactly this. Start this program. Go to these people. But the word of God more often is a small, still voice in your heart that draws you to do something. God, we want to be a people who just freely responds to that. Just freely responds to that. We are not under obligation at all. There's a group of people that I would like to pray for, if you're feeling it. There are two stories here. One is the story of unredeemed man. And it sounds like the story of the world. It doesn't always sound dramatic, like and killing his brother, but it sounds like not living the vibrant life that God has promised me. If you feel like that's you, would you stand up? If there are promises that you have been waiting for, vibrancy in relationships, salvation for healing in marriages, wherever you feel like the power of God needs to come, I'd love for you to stand up and we could pray for you. Got a few there. Thank you. Church, I want to so raise the bar. Have you seen everything that you are looking for in the story of God? If you haven't seen everything, then we have not fully grasped the story that God is telling in us. Guys, we got a few people standing up. If you are around these people who are standing, would you just come and pray for them? Thank you, God. You just you release your power over these people to tell another story, God. In the New Testament, it says that your blood speaks a better story than the blood of Abel. Thank you, God. We want your story. We want to lay down our stories. I've told my story enough. I know where I came from outside of Jesus, and it doesn't go anywhere. It just doesn't go anywhere, Jesus. I need to have only your story. Only your story is good enough for me. The apostles and disciples left their homes and left their father's house, left their story to join Jesus' story, and I want to join that story. Thank you, God. God, I thank you that where there is a new story, there is power for the fulfillment of that story. That's how your creation pattern works. That's how Pentecost worked, where you start a new story. Where there is a new story, there's always more power for that. I know that there are people here who are thinking about that new story that they want to live out, but they don't feel like there's any power for that thing. Thank you, God, that there is power for the new story. It's true. The new story of Jesus does not work without power. It, it absolutely does not work. And that's okay. The power comes after you step, after you open up that uncertainty and step into that tension between the circumstances and God's story. The power doesn't come first. The stepping into the tension comes first.
Jesus. I bless these people who are coming forward and standing up to live their story with new power. I thank you for making a new creation. Jesus, you are a new man who lives in a different way. Thank you for freedom from unempowered ways of living that are outside of Jesus. Thank you for freedom. Thanks so much for joining us for today's message. We hope and pray that it's been most helpful. If you are keen to find out a little bit more about us as a church whanau or you'd like to touch base, then you can go to coast.org.nz and there you'll find information about our in-person services, online services, various resources and activities. Enjoy the day. Be blessed.